Well, I've got to warn you uh, from the very beginning here that uh, there is <laughs> some percentage chance that my wife is in labor as we speak. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we're kind of, for those of you who have had kids, uh, we're kind of in that limbo state. Becca's been having contractions all morning, but they're sort of spread pretty far apart and not that intense. So it uh, could be a false alarm, could be the day. So I am very much on call. Uh, Becca knows that uh, she's going to call me if I need to come home, and so we, there may be a very abrupt end to this uh, sermon. Um, <laughs> we will see. So. If I get a phone call and, and sort of panic and run off stage, you know where I'm going. Uh, my family's going to increase exponentially. So anyways, we're getting close. Any, any day now. All right. Um, yeah, exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting. I've got all kinds of excited, nervous energy going on. So hopefully I'm able to say something uh, coherent. Okay. Uh, <coughs> I have this sort of somewhat romantic uh, conception of what I think America used to be when it was a more Christian nation. And uh, I often wonder what it would be like to do evangelism in America at a time when people were generally more open towards Christianity. Uh, I wonder what it would be like to live in a world where uh, random people, just the average adult on the street, would be receptive or at least neutral uh, towards Christianity where people would at least be willing to listen and soberly consider the gospel. Now, I don't want to paint uh, too negative of a picture. I think that in a lot of ways it's remarkable um, how open people in this country still are to the gospel and to Christianity. But I think we live in a world uh, where a lot of non-Christians have some pretty negative preconceptions about uh, what Christianity is, what Christians are. Of course, this is just my own anecdotal uh, experience, but my impression is that people, especially people in my generation, uh, and especially people where I live in, in an even more urban environment than this in Chicago, uh, are increasingly opposed to biblical Christianity, true, robust, orthodox, biblical Christianity. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that Christians are caricatured, I'll say, in all sorts of uh, popular media. These days, I think non-Christians increasingly think of Bible-believing Christians as dumb, closed-minded, self-righteous, bigoted, and misogynistic. And I think those preconceptions are a pretty big hurdle when it comes to doing evangelism. You can imagine why. People's preconceptions of Christians and Christianity are a huge factor when it comes to their willingness to consider the gospel. And if that's people's preconceived conception of Christianity, if that's what comes to their mind when they hear the words Christianity or Christian, imagine what's going on inside their head if you ask them if you'd like to become a Christian or if you'd like to have a conversation with them about, their, about your faith. In their mind, what you're asking them is, would you like to be joined, would you like to join, become a part of my bigoted, closed-minded, hateful, self-righteous religion? You can see how that would be a pretty big hurdle to overcome if that's what automatically comes into people's minds when they think about Christians and Christianity. Now, of course, there is a version of Christianity that's perfectly acceptable uh, in, our culture, in our culture today. It's the private version that has no consequence whatsoever on your life. People are okay with you being a Christian if that's what being a Christian means. It's fine to call yourself a Christian as long as you don't bother anyone else with it, and it has no real impact on your life. It's okay to be a Christian as long as you realize that Christianity isn't right. It's just right for you. 
It's okay to be a Christian as long as you don't take the Bible seriously. And it's okay to be a Christian as long as you still agree with the world's sense of morality and values. The sort of Christianity that our culture accepts is the kind that keeps to itself and goes with the flow. Don't rock the boat. So the problem is the moment that you suggest that people should become Christian, you've broken the rules. Christianity might work for you, but that's just your path. That's your truth, so you need to keep it to yourself. The moment that you suggest that everyone is in need of the salvation that Christ and Christ alone can provide, your Christianity becomes intolerant. So, here we have another hurdle to evangelism. How can we do evangelism in a world that only accepts Christians who do not do evangelism? How do we do evangelism in a world that only accepts Christians who don't do evangelism, who won't impose their beliefs on other people? How do we do evangelism in a world where the words Christian and Christianity conjure up so many negative associations? You put all that together and it's easy to think that the average adult non-believer is just too far gone. When you think about sharing your faith with a neighbor or a co-worker that you don't know particularly well, it can seem so highly unlikely that they'll even seriously listen to what you have to say that it doesn't even seem worth it. It can seem like there isn't even really much point in bringing up your faith or the gospel because our culture is growing so hostile to these ideas that you'll just immediately be dismissed. Now, it's not that their sin is too great. It's not that we believe that people's sin is too great to overcome. It's that our culture has drifted so far away from God that it seems nearly impossible that a person who is so naturally opposed to God would ever come to faith in Him. It seems like more and more people these days won't even seriously consider Christianity as a viable, reasonable, healthy, legitimate option. And the situation is far worse in Europe. There's a theologian that I like and respect, and in his opinion... Europe has become so post-Christian that asking the average European on the street to put their faith in Christ is the same as asking them to believe in the tooth fairy. Another way he puts it is asking the average European on the street to come to faith in Christ is the equivalent of asking a Christian here in America to put their faith in Krishna. You just wouldn't even consider it. You just wouldn't even consider it. You'd rule it out of hand. Now, I don't think we're there yet, but we're a, a few steps behind, and that seems to be the direction that we're moving in. Well, today we're going to continue our time in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at a story of remarkable transformation that God is able to make in people's lives. It's the story of the conversion of a man named Saul. Of course, most of you, probably all of you know who Saul is. Saul is the guy who would later go by the name Paul, play a major role in establishing the church throughout the Mediterranean world, and write most of the New Testament. So obviously, a miraculous transformation. But we're going to look at who Saul was before he was that man, Paul, and what sort of transformation God made in his life. So please uh, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be read verses 1 through 25. Still a long passage, but much shorter than we've been after lately. So. Acts 9, 1 through 25. But Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority for the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The first thing, and I think the most important thing that we can take away from this story, comes from the very beginning of the story in verses 1 through 9. There is no such thing as a person who is too far gone. There is no such thing as a person who is too far gone. There is no mind that God cannot change. There is no heart that God cannot crack. And so we can never, ever give up on people. Not because of what people can do, but because of what God can do. I want that to remain abundantly clear throughout this entire sermon, and I hope it stays clear. The reason we can never give up on people is not because of what people can do, but because of what God can do, because of the remarkable power God has to save people, to change their minds, to transform their lives. And there there may be no person who exemplifies that more than Saul in verses 1 through 9 of this story. 
I want to encourage you to try to pay close attention and really appreciate the position that Saul is in at the beginning of the story, especially if this story is familiar to you. Sometimes when we're familiar with a story like this, it's easy to take the details for granted and just sort of gloss over some things that are really crucially important. Remember, at this point in the book of Acts, Christianity, the Christian church, what's referred to as the way here in this story, is really just getting started. There have been a significant number of people who have come to faith in and around Jerusalem, but this group is now facing a surge of hostility. And Saul is at the forefront of that surge. Just a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 7, another very famous story from the book of Acts, a Christian named Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that Saul approved of his execution. The idea here is that Saul sort of oversaw the execution or that it happened under his authority. Now think about how remarkable that is. This is a guy who was actively seeking to imprison and execute Christians. You cannot gloss over that detail. No matter how anti-Christian our culture seems, there are no cultural leaders in America today who are actively and openly advocating for the imprisonment and execution of Christians. That's a guy who is pretty strongly opposed to Christianity. Saul was not only openly advocating for all this, but he had already gone through with it. Try to wrap your mind around that. This is so foreign to us. An actual person, a human being with a mother and father, was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. That really happened. That is a historical account. I mean, this is like legitimately ISIS-type stuff that's going on. And and I don't bring that up to make light of that or to make a joke of it. It's to drive home the real seriousness of what Saul was involved in. That's how bad it was. Saul was on an all-out, literal war against Christianity, hoping to stomp it out through violent persecution. In the way that Adolf Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews, so Saul wanted to exterminate Christians. He just didn't get far enough along. This was not a nice guy. You think it's hard to share the gospel with a co-worker. Imagine the idea of giving the gospel to Saul. At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we are told that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the the disciples of the Lord. And again, these are not empty threats. These are threats that he has already followed through on. And I think that this picture is really vivid, descriptive language. You can picture the violence and anger of this man who is just breathing anger and hostility towards Christians, looking to stomp them out wherever he can. This is not a calm, sensible guy. This is an angry, violent man. There's a movie called Downfall. Have any of you heard of this movie, Downfall? It's a German movie. Nobody? Okay, you've got to see it. Okay, yeah, one. You've got to see it. It's a German movie about the last 10 days of Hitler's life as, uh, before his suicide as his empire sort of crumbled around him. And there is a scene in that movie. It's, it's a, it really is. It's a phenomenal movie. It's intense, but it's definitely worth seeing. There's a scene in that movie towards the end where Hitler is in a bunker and he has sort of uh, his... Uh, military advisors and some of his other advisors gathered together in a room. And they sort of break the news to him that it's over, that this war is over. And that scene, you've got to watch it. 
his anger and rage and vitriol that comes out of him, just breathing anger at these soldiers as things are falling, collapsing down around him. That's the image that comes to my mind when I read this phrase. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's Hitler raging in his bunker as his empire is falling down around him. Saul is on his way to Damascus, and he has a plan. Damascus is a city just to the northeast of Israel in modern-day Syria. And what he's going to do is he's going to go see if he can find Christians there. And if he can find them, he's going to imprison them, he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem, and he is going to stomp them out. He is still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's where we are at verses 1 through 3 in this passage, this story. And this is the time when God chooses to intervene. It is literally while Saul is on his way to persecute Christians that Saul becomes a Christian. Think about that. Saul is literally on his way to persecute Christians. And at that time is when Saul himself becomes a Christian. Think about how remarkable of a transformation that is. Try to wrap your mind around that. It's unbelievable that God can intervene in someone's life and make that, some, that sort of radical transformation. We all know someone, perhaps many people, that we're just tempted to think that there is no way, that they're too far gone, that they're too invested in their lifestyle, that they're too lost in their thinking. Maybe it's a brother or a sister, a mother or father, son or daughter, someone you've prayed for and talked to over the years, you've tried to be a good example, you've tried to show Christ's love, and they just seem to be absolutely impenetrable. Maybe it's a coworker who found you're a Christian and loves nothing more than antagonizing you for your faith. Maybe it's an old friend who just seems completely lost and invested in their worldview and lifestyle. I'm sure that for almost all of you, someone specific is coming to mind. But maybe it's no one. Maybe it's no one in particular. But as our culture drifts further and further away from God, you can't help but think that the average person swept up in the current of our increasingly hostile and pro-Christian culture is just too far gone. Well, if Saul is not too far gone, there is no such thing as too far gone. If Saul was not too far gone, there is no such thing as too far gone. And of course, this is a story about conversion, but sometimes we can be tempted to give up even on Christian people. You probably all know people, Christian people, who are stuck in their ways, who are lost in some sin and are completely blind to it. People who just seem to do the same thing over and over again. People who are stuck in the same pattern for years, even for decades, and there just seems like there is no hope that this person will ever change. If there was hope for Saul to change, there is hope for everyone to change. In order to see just what God is capable of, you have to be able to see how remarkably bad a guy Saul was, how remarkably opposed to Christ he was. And yet, on some day that otherwise seemed completely random, while he was on his way to persecute Christians, he became a Christian that is an absolutely remarkable testimony to the power of God to save, to change minds, and to transform lives. 
because of what God can do, we should never give up on people and we can never lose hope. There is always a chance that today will be the day that God will intervene in a powerful, miraculous way to change someone's heart, mind, and life. So, whenever you come across a story like this, the question is, what's the secret to getting people to change? How do we make this happen? When we see a transformation that's this dramatic, we naturally want to find out what we need to do to repeat it. What are the three steps that I need to follow to get God to make this change in my life? What are the words I need to say to get God to make this change in my son or my friend? Well, another thing that is absolutely remarkable about this story is how clear it is that God is the one who saves Saul. That God is the one who intervenes. That God is the one who does this work. Look at verse 1 through 9. What did people do that we can repeat? Aside from escorting people to Damascus, what could you possibly say a person did in verses 1 through 9 of this story that we could repeat? Saul didn't come to faith after hearing some great sermon. Saul came to faith in God when God himself intervened. Make no mistake, that is how people get saved. It may not be as dramatic as it happens in Saul's life. It may not be apparent. There may not be a shining light and audible voices. But people get saved when God intervenes in their life. There is no magic formula. There is no tactic. There are no automatic steps to take. If we are going to see the sort of transformation, it is going to be because God works this sort of transformation. So then, what are we supposed to do? Do we just sit back? uninvolved, waiting for God to work. Well, this is where I think it's important that we look at the next part of the story, verses 10 through 19. I think we can learn a lot from the example of Ananias and the specific way that he is involved in this story. I think that the similarities between what Ananias does in Acts chapter 9 and what the disciples did in Acts chapter 1 is striking. Remember, God does not need us. God's plans do not depend on us, and yet he invites us to participate in his project of redemption. When we looked at the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, I proposed to you that while the most miraculous part of that story is what happens in Acts chapter 2, the most significant human activity is what happened in Acts chapter 1. The disciples obeyed Jesus' instructions, devoted themselves to prayer, and waited for God to work. They put themselves in a position to be on board with what God is doing. Well, in a similar way, the most miraculous things that happens in this story happens in verses 1 through 9. It's the transformation that happens in Saul's life. But there is nothing that we can do to make that sort of thing happen. That was all God's plan and God's power. In the same way that there's no magic formula in Acts chapter 1, to produce the results that you see in Acts chapter 2. There is no magic formula in verses 1 through 9 through this passage that show us the way that we can automatically produce these sorts of results. But if we want to be on board with what God is doing, if we want to take advantage of the invitation he gives us to be on board with what he is doing, then we have to look at Ananias' example. And here I think one phrase is particularly important. Look at verse 10 with me. Chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. If we're going to be on board with what God is doing in his church, then we have to have a here I am, Lord 
attitude. Ananias didn't do anything to change Paul. He doesn't cause anything. And yet, because he had a here-I-am-Lord attitude, God used him and he was able to be involved in what God was doing. So, what is a here-I-am-Lord attitude? First of all, I think a here-I-am-Lord attitude is an attitude of willingness. An attitude of willingness. It's a willingness to let God be God. A willingness to let God make the plans. You don't get to set the agenda for God and His church. It doesn't matter what you think God should do or when you think God should do it. God does not need your help or advice. If you're going to be on board with what God is doing and with His plan, then you're going to have to get on board with His plan, not give God the opportunity to get on board with yours. A here-I-am-Lord attitude says, Here-I-am-Lord, you use me as you see fit. I await your instructions, your guidance, your direction. If we want to be on board with what God is doing, we have to make ourselves available to God who is able to do this sort of miraculous work with or without us. That's a here-I-am-Lord attitude. Second, a here-I-am-Lord attitude entails a willingness to act, a willingness to actually do what God leads you to do. I think a lot of Christians often have a hard time hearing God. We are constantly distracted. From the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, we have almost constant input. It's the radio on the way to work, and then it's all the things, the, the input, the advertisements and billboards and all the input you get at work, and then you come home, and there's always something on in the background. There's television or radio, or even if you read books, there's just constant input, constant input. There's constant noise, whether it's actual audible noise or not. We have this constant input. And that's a part of the reason that we have a hard time hearing God. We fill our lives with too much noise, too much input. But I do think that's only part of the reason that we have a hard time hearing God. I think a bigger factor is that we don't actually want to hear Him. As a matter of fact, I think this is part of the reason why we constantly have noise. We want to be distracted. We don't want to hear it. We don't want Him telling us what to do. We'd rather have things our own way. We want to be in charge. We want our time. So we drown God's voice out. We all have to ask ourselves, am I really willing to act? Do I really want to hear God? Or would I rather have Him leave me alone so I can do things my own way? That's an important question if you want to have a here I am, Lord sort of attitude. Now, like us, Ananias had his fair share of objections. When he found out what God wanted to do, he basically said, are you sure? <laughs> do you know what, what Saul is up to? Do you know why he's here? Do you know what reputation that he has? Likewise, you're going to have your own objections. You all know it's just much easier to go with the flow at work and at home to not rock the boat. What God does is not always going to make sense to you. When God does it is not always going to make sense to you. But ultimately, Ananias was willing. He listened and obeyed. He went. Despite his uncertainty, despite his objections, he decided to do what God was clearly telling him to do. That's a here-I-am-Lord attitude. Having a here-I-am-Lord attitude also gives us balance, and I think this is important. Some people, some of you, are inclined to take matters into your own hand. We all have inclinations. I think some of you are the sort of people who are inclined to take matters 
into your own hands. You are essentially inclined to be spiritual busybodies. You hear me say that we can never give up on people because God can always change lives, and you instantly overestimate how much that depends on you and your involvement. When I say that no one is too far gone, you hear me say that no one is too far, far gone for you. You hear that as an imperative to get busy. If I just say the right words in the right way at the right time, if I just come up with the right argument, then so-and-so would finally be saved. Then finally, God would do what I've been telling him he should do all along. What we end up doing when we go down this path is relentlessly pursue our own plans rather than realizing our limitations and trusting God and his plan. If that is your inclination, then for you, a here-I-am-Lord attitude will challenge you to wait on the Lord and trust in him and his plan If your inclination is to take matters into your own hands and overestimate your ability to make things happen, then for you, developing a here-I-am-Lord attitude means learning to let God use you when and how He sees fit and learning to be content with your limitations. On the other hand, some people are inclined to take their hands off the wheel. Some of you hear me say that God is the one who changes lives, and you think that gives you the freedom to be totally uninvolved, to do nothing. It's a fact that God is going to do what God is going to do, whether you're on board or not, and you use that as an excuse to do nothing. I'll share the gospel with my coworkers or neighbors when God forces me to. After all, I'm not going to save anyone. It's not me, it's God. If that's your inclination then for you, a here-I-am-Lord attitude will challenge you to be more willing to act. Because I guarantee that if you devote yourself to God and genuinely say to Him, here I am, Lord, show me an opportunity to love, show me an opportunity to care, show me an opportunity to serve, show me an opportunity to share the gospel, then you will have plenty of work to keep you busy. God does not need you. But there are plenty of ways that God will use you if you decide to get on board with his plan. So, my challenge to you this morning is to take inventory of yourself and ask, do I have a here-I-am-Lord attitude? Are you willing to let God be God and play whatever role he gives you to play? Are you willing to act, to actually do what God leads you to do? God makes a habit of doing the miraculous, of doing things that we never thought possible. The same God who is able to make a miraculous change in the life of Saul is active in this world today making changes. And you have the opportunity to be on board with that work, with that project. But God does not need you, and he will not force you to be on board. If you want to sit this out, God will let you. So if we want the privilege of being on board with what God is doing, then we need to work on developing a here-I-am-Lord attitude and put ourselves in the same position that Ananias found himself in. When God called on him, he said, Here I am, Lord, and he listened. The result of that was that he was able to be involved in this miraculous life-changing event. He didn't cause it. He's not the reason that it happened. He didn't do the right things. All he said was, Lord, here I am. You use me as you see fit. Now, the story of Saul's conversion doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, most of the rest of the book of Acts is just a continuation 
of this story. But today I had us read all the way through verse 25, because I think the rest of this story really highlights the remarkable change in Saul's life as a result of God's intervention. And in addition to challenging you to develop a here I am Lord attitude, my goal this morning is to try to show you how wonderfully powerful and miraculous God is so that your faith is encouraged. So we're not going to spend much time on these verses, but I want to conclude with the rest of this story because I want to show you what God is capable of doing in order to give you a relentless hope, a hope that God can always intervene, that today might be the day where change happens because God is the sort of God who is able to do that sort of thing. And the rest of this story, verses 20 through 25, I think really drive home the remarkable transformation in Saul's life. First, in verses 20 through 22, we learn that Saul immediately and effectively began to proclaim Christ. So in a town that Saul intended to persecute Christ, Saul wound up preaching Christ. Think again about how remarkable that change is. In a town where Saul intended to persecute Christ, Saul wound up preaching Christ. Later in verses 23 through 25, we learn that Saul winds up being persecuted and run out of town because of his new ministry. Now that doesn't seem like a very happy ending to the story. But again, think about the remarkable transformation that would have to take place in Saul's life. In the town where he intended to be a persecutor, he wound up being persecuted. Think about how much his life would have to change for him to be willing to endure this persecution. How easy would it be for him to just go back to his old ways? And yet Saul has been so miraculously transformed that he is willing to endure persecution for a faith that just a short time ago he was desperately trying to eradicate. Three truly ironic developments in Saul's life show just how powerful God is, and these are true ironies. On his way to persecute Christians, Saul becomes a Christian. In the, in the town that Saul intended to persecute Christ, Saul preached Christ. And the faith that Saul was hoping to eradicate, he came to have so strongly that he was willing to be persecuted for it. Think about that. Let that sink in. Meditate on that this week. Think about how remarkable a change it was that God would do this in Saul's life. And it's because God is able to make these sorts of miraculous changes that we can never give up on people. You just never know what sort of miraculous change God is going to make in people's lives. And now we're going to remember and celebrate the great work that God did in history so that he could redeem us and change us. I'm going to